unto thee, O Lord. Do I lift up my end of each pew and pass it down the aisle so we can have a record of everyone's attendance. Uh, a couple of housekeeping duties. Tonight the young young people will be presenting their speeches and song leading and uh, so we'll have no classes tonight and that begins at five o'clock. On Wednesday night we will have classes. However, the debate, girls debate will be in the uh, ladies' class in the Little Chapel. The guys' debate will be in the annex, but uh, the other classes will be uh, as normal. Each Sunday we come together to worship the Lord, and we have this time together. Let's begin together in prayer. Our Father, thank You for all things that You do for us. Father, we are so blessed with so many young people that are preparing themselves for last leaders, and we pray that you'll be with them tonight as they present their lessons and lead singing. Father, we are so thankful for each and every one of them. Father, we pray that as we come together today, we can worship you, and our worship will be in accordance with your will. Be with us and help us to do the very best that we can to carry the love of Jesus throughout our community. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
morning. First song this morning will be I Will Call Upon the Lord. I will
There's a fountain free, number 909. Song before our lesson this morning will be Our God, He is Alive. Y'all go ahead and stand as we sing this song. <clears throat> Scripture reading come from the book of Revelations, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Revelations, chapter 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you, have, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who, who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on a stone a new name written, which no one knows except, except him who receives it.
about our purity before God. Before we start that today, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this privilege opportunity to be together to worship like we have been doing and to continue in that through our study of your word and the anticipation of partaking of the Lord's Supper and giving from that bounty that we've already considered and set in our hearts. I pray, Father, that in this period of time as we are studying your word that it will be alive in us to the degree that it will identify any weakness that we have. And that today, Father, if it's necessary, you'll convict us of that weakness and make it a strength. And Father, if we are already strong in the faith and pure in your sight, I pray that you will protect us against the wiles of the devil. Help us never to be deceived by the lies that he would tell us. Help us to use the example that we read here in this text to know that what we should be is unyielding in every aspect of our relationship with you and to be faithful until death, even if that requires literally our physical death. Thank you, Lord, for what you'll teach us in this text and help me to communicate it the, the best way that I can and be with those who hear it that they can receive it into their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You can't see it, but there's a little here that I'm going to have to navigate today. So if I fall flat on my face, I'm just going to go ahead and give you permission to laugh at me because I'm going to be laughing. Okay, so there's something that's in this text that's pretty challenging. He talks about the sword, which is... Speaking and it manifesting itself as a two-edged sword. I'm reminded, as probably you are, of something that's in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. That text tells us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Here's something that I know the two-edged sword, the Word of God can do. It can identify sin, and it can also convict the sinner. The Lord knows what's going on with every single one of us. The Lord knows the kind of things that we are involved in and He knows the circumstances that we are in. I'm going to say this at the outset, something that I believe is absolutely true. You and I are responsible to be faithful. And then I'm just going to put a period right there. We are responsible to God as Christians to be faithful. Now you say, Ken... Some people have it pretty easy with regard to their faithfulness. They're surrounded by Christians or they live in a nation that favors Christianity. They don't have too many persecutions. So it must be pretty easy for them to be faithful. Maybe that's true. I can't put myself in the shoes of anybody else and really know how it's going. But generally speaking, I would say you're probably right. When it's easy on us, it's easy to be faithful. But what about those conditions where there's a lot of persecution or oppression? Or maybe it's generally easy, except that there are a lot of temptations that we have to deal with. And so, Ken, in those circumstances, when it's not easy, man, I'm telling you, it's hard to be faithful. You know, all of those things that are trying to pull us down. Peace, I got you. It just seems like standing on the outside looking in and just making our general judgments that for some people it's pretty easy to be faithful and for other people it seems to be more difficult. 
but I still stand by my original assertion. You and I, regardless of where we find ourselves and the circumstances that surround us, you and I are expected, no matter what, to be faithful. Now, this church that's in Pergamos, the text seems to suggest that for the largest part, this is a church that has been known for its faithfulness. Except that they've fallen short in a couple of areas. For them to be able to overcome the circumstances that they find themselves in, they're going to have to find that strength within themselves that strength that the Lord can can infuse within them, the strength to be able to, to demonstrate in a world that is against them an unyielding spirit with regard to two things, two things that are actually addressed in this text. To be unyielding with regard to our faithfulness, which we, we just put a period right there, no matter what, we're going to be faithful, and then also to be unyielding with regard to purity. Well, let's start at that first analysis of the text. Let's think for a minute about being that kind of church. An unyielding family of God is faithful. Now, it's interesting, the Lord says in verse 13, I know your works... And I know where you dwell. Now, we don't have to look very far in this text to find out that where they dwell is actually a pretty tough place, right? They're dwelling where Satan has his throne. They're dwelling where Satan dwells. So if I'm, if I'm going to be unyielding with regard to my faith, Well, don't I need to take into account the circumstances that I find myself in? Think about that church. They are trying to be faithful right there where Satan is living. I mean, he is against them continually. Now, when I think about faithfulness, usually, and isn't this true? Usually in the scriptures, isn't our examination of people's faith usually being surrounded with some kind of trauma or difficulty. In fact, in in many cases, the degree to which they are possessing a faith that pleases God is oftentimes keyed to the negative circumstances that they were dealing with. You could go to the chapter that just lists a bunch of people of faith, and you'll find that in every case, their faith is pretty well defined by the response that they had to a negative circumstance. Abel is described as a person who ultimately is killed by his brother, but he continues to speak regarding faith because despite the challenge that he faced, he died in his faith, you know? The text says his blood is still crying out from the ground. Abel's a great example of living in an environment that was not conducive to his faith, in this case with regard to the conflict with his brother, and yet even though he died, he still prevailed. There was a guy in a bad environment, had good faith. Same thing with Enoch. Enoch was living in a time, although he was righteous, his righteous soul was being vexed by those ungodly people of his time. And it was so bad, apparently, that after 365 years of it, God just took him. I mean, imagine that. Being the righteous man, perhaps basically the only righteous man on earth trying to do the right thing, and yet God has such compassion and mercy on you, He just takes you out of it. It's so bad. That's a tough environment to be faithful, and yet right there He is in the midst of a chapter of faithfulness. Noah, of course, is synonymous with that very idea. He wasn't alone in that his wife was converted and his three sons and their wives, but that was the extent of faithfulness on the earth. Those folks were spared in an ark and the rest of humanity and the animal life that had been apparently corrupted by that was also destroyed. 
except Noah and those animals that were preserved in the ark. There again, a terrible environment, but a great example of faithfulness. Well, you don't have to destroy an ungodly world in order to have a faith that is exemplary, and that certainly was the case with Abraham. Now, Abraham leaves the land of his birth to go to a place that God would show him, but, you know, it took many generations for the people who were his descendants to finally come to the place that God had promised. All of that a result of iniquity that was in the world, needing to separate an entire people, a nation to serve God because of the wickedness that was there. And, of course, that was also true in Moses' time to the extent that Moses is freeing God's people from oppression and slavery in the land of Egypt. And the whole history of Israel from that point on is about their desire, or at least God's desire for them, to be faithful in the face of a world of iniquity. And and what more shall we say? You know, for the time would would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, escaped the the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Okay, so here are all these people through all this time demonstrating faithfulness in a world in their own time that was against them only to live such that they didn't receive the reward. They lived in faithfulness all the way to us so that we could benefit from the example of their faithfulness and then ultimately, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, to follow the example of Jesus who just, he set his mind on what was before him, not on what was behind him. Listen, when it comes to a life striving to be faithful, it doesn't matter what the environment's like. God is expecting us, even in a difficult place, to remain faithful, period. Isn't that what God did with Joseph? You know, Joseph Joseph is a guy who, you know, is, is so favored by his father, but ultimately his brothers hate him to the degree that they throw him in a pit and they're going to take his life. Uh, but he's spared, but how's he spared? Well, he's spared into slavery and ends up in pretty good situation in Potiphar's house, but ultimately because of the sin of Potiphar's wife, he is falsely accused and ends up in prison. And then... Delivered from prison, God finally exalts him to a high position in the palace of Pharaoh. But listen, folks, life was not easy for Joseph. Despite all of the hiccups and the turns and twists in his story, he remained faithful to God, period. And then there's that guy, Jeremiah. Jeremiah knows something about being in a pit, In Jeremiah 38 and verse 6, we find him in a miry pit. But he remains faithful to God despite the opposition even of his own people. Faithful, period. And then there's Daniel in the lion's den. Faithful, period. There is Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in that fiery furnace but they remain faithful with a big period at the end of it. I don't care about my environment and my circumstances. I remain faithful, period. And so the Lord says, here's something that I really appreciate about that church in Pergamos, this unyielding family of God. I appreciate that they hold fast my name, and that they do not deny my faith. I love that. 
They hold fast the name. Lord, I'm not ashamed of you. Didn't Paul say it so beautifully? 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. He says, I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him unto that day. One thing I know for sure, whatever it is I've committed to the Lord, he's going to be faithful. So you know what? I'm going to be faithful too. That's what just keeps pushing me along. That's what keeps me unyielding to the efforts on the outside, however negative they might be, to do otherwise. An example in this text is that of a man by the name of Antipas. I don't know Antipas, don't know anything about Antipas except the most important thing. And that is that despite even the fact that he died for the faith, he became a martyr for the Lord. The text says that he became that martyr even where Satan dwells, where his throne is. You know, Antipas wasn't set back by the fact that it is the worst of circumstances. He was going to be faithful even unto his own death, period. Would you sing a song with me? 688. When you sing this song, I want you to sing this with the thought that, you know what, no matter what, I am going to be faithful to the Lord. I am never, ever, ever going to forsake the Lord. Faithful with a what? A period at the end of it. 
So he uses an interesting illustration here in this text. He talks about Balaam. And typically when we think about Balaam, well, we think about a failure. You know, Balaam was hired, so to speak, by Balak so that he would curse the children of Israel, just curse them right where they stood. And so Balaam, according to Numbers chapters 22, 23, 24, went about the effort to curse the children of God. But he was thwarted every time by God Himself. A curse could only be effective if God were behind it. And instead of cursing the children of Israel, every time Balaam opened his mouth, he was blessing the children of Israel. In other words, there wasn't anything that Balaam could do to cause the people to become unfaithful by having God curse them. Or, let's just make it simpler, God's always on my side. And God is going to do what God can do in order to help me be faithful. He will never create a stumbling block to my unfaithfulness. I can absolutely count on Him. But that's not the only reference to Balaam. In Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16, we find out that Balaam although he could not curse the people of God as an affront through the power of God, couldn't do it because that's God's people. What he could do is turn their heart against God. And the way he did that was twofold. One, he encouraged the people to follow after idols. And number two, he encouraged a light view of fornication. Not a big deal, he would say. Look, everybody's doing it. Now, here in Pergamos, there was a group of people within the church who were referred to as the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans, for lack of a better way of describing them, had taken up the error of Balaam. In other words, what they were trying to do in a contemporary sense for them was to try and, you know, kind of subvert, yeah, you're faithful to the Lord, but don't you know that the Lord has freed us from the constraints of the law? And so there are a lot of things that we're free to do now. We're free to eat things that have been offered to idols. We're free to participate in things like fornication. God isn't holding a hard line on any of that stuff. And so we as Christians, we just need to loosen up. Well, that's very different from what Paul said, right? In Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's a great question. But, you know, forget about what Paul has to say. They're just saying, you know, the burden of all that's been taken away in Jesus Christ. The error of Balaam. God wants you to be faithful. God wants you to go to heaven. But if He can cause you to begin to question that or somehow undermine His truths, to just kind of put question marks everywhere and do what pleases you, then instead of God turning on you, you are in effect subject to turning on, well, turning on Him. Again, is, is that okay? For instance, specifically, he talks about fornication. Is, is that okay? You know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now stop right there and analyze that for a second. Those who do not know God practice such things, he says. But God's will is that you not practice them. Specifically is this subject, sexual immorality, fornication. I saw recently 
and maybe you've heard of them, the Pew Research Center, the Pew Research Foundation. They did a little study in 2021, so that's recent. They said that 50% of those people who consider themselves to be Christians believe that casual sex among consenting adults is acceptable. 50% of those who consider themselves to be Christians, casual sex with a consenting adult, it's okay. You might not be surprised, although you might think the number's low, <laughs> that those who don't identify themselves, who basically are just, you know, non-religious, 84% of those folks believe that casual sex among consenting adults is acceptable. But anyway, you slice that, don't you get the impression that the majority of people, apparently even those who would say they are Christians, have in their mind that it's okay to do the very thing that Balaam used to undermine the people of God. The very thing that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we need to abstain from. Is God okay with it then since most people, even those who call themselves Christians, is it okay then to be involved with someone sexually who is not your spouse if it's consensual? Well, I'm thinking about... And there are several passages that I could go to, but I don't know of any that are any plainer than this one right here and that has such a great moral that goes with it. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, let's stop for a minute. Will I inherit the kingdom of God if it is my practice to be involved, oh, let's say, in sexual immorality? The answer, according to that text, is no. But there is this moral that goes along with it. God says, watch out. Do not be deceived. Now that is key. You should underline that in your Bible at that text. Do not be deceived. The people, the Israelites in Balaam's time, were deceived. They were convinced it's okay to commit fornication. To, to eat the things offered to idols just to kind of be like the world is. They thought it was okay to succumb to the pressures of that which was evil around them. Even in Paul's time, given that he says it's the will of God to do this, don't do that, you get the idea they were struggling with the very same thing. Going to have innovations in our relationship with God, maybe entertain things that are foreign to God, and certainly be involved in sexual immorality, fornication. Is that okay? God says, no, that's not okay. You say, well, wait, well, hold on, Ken. You probably missed something very important in that Pew Research study. Now, remember what it said. It was saying that 50% and 84% that that was with regard to casual sex among consenting adults. Ken, those folks are consenting. Do you understand? That means that both the man and the woman, or Lord help us, however other arrangement is acceptable in this world today, but however that thing fleshed itself out, you say those folks were consenting, Ken. If you're consenting, nobody's getting hurt in that. Nobody's, nobody's being wounded. It's okay. Calm down. Well, you might be consenting, and your partner may be consenting, 
But God is not consenting to this. And if God is not consenting to this, but I am consenting to this, then I can just remove that period after my faithfulness. Yes? Because I'm not being faithful. I'm letting the world influence or direct what I do. I don't care if a hundred percent of those who were surveyed says it's okay. If God says it's sin, it's still sin. And if it's still sin, then according to just one text that we looked at, I'm not going to heaven as a result of that activity. Here's what God said do. God did not say, well, what we got to do is just kind of get with the times and rethink this thing. And if most people think it's okay, especially if it's consenting, then we'll be, we'll be okay with it. That's not what God said. God said what you do then, if you find yourself in this situation, is you repent. Now, it is rare to hear God talk this way. No, no, not with regard to repent. It's with what follows. God says, repent or else. Whoa. <laughs> Did you ever have anybody say that to you? You do this or else. And sometimes we wonder, and maybe we even say, or else what? God doesn't leave us with a question mark there. He says, number one, I'm going to come to you quickly. So there's no delay in that. He's moving on it. I'm coming to you quickly, verse 16, and when I get there, I am going to fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Now, as a child of God, and I'm faithful, and I'm pure, and I'm living for God, and I'm, I'm walking my way to heaven, that does not strike fear in my heart at all. You know, just, just like John in his conclusion says, even so, come, Lord Jesus, I am ready to go. I hope we're all ready to go. Because we got that period after our faithfulness, and we are unyielding with regard to purity. But I'll tell you what, if we're a part of that 50% that thinks it's okay, to commit sin and have no consequence? If we're a part of that 84% that are on the fringes out there that are taking over our society and putting pressure on us every single day to accept things that at one time we never thought possible to accept, if we are hanging on to those things, then we ought to be terrified by the fact that the Lord's not only going to come quick, but He is going to come with that sword and He is slashing that word of God will identify that sin as quick as what? And then it will convict. What should I do, Lord? That was simple. Repent. If I will do that, then there's some good things that happen. Man, I can be a partaker of that hidden manna. I kind of take that as the instruction of God. And the instruction of God that will come along then with our pardon, we repented. So the Lord forgave us. I listened to the word that came and now I've been pardoned from my sin. I'm given, oh, that white stone and written on that's a new name. I've become a child of God adopted by the Lord and now I am set for heaven itself. If you need to repent, do it quickly. If you don't need to repent, then rejoice. If you need to come forward today, why don't you come while we stand together and sing.
First few verses of John chapter 24 reads as follows. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came and came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then when they went in and did not see the body of the Lord Jesus, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed that this at this that they beheld two men stood by them in shining apparel. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. The world uh, celebrates the resurrection of Jesus today, and of course we're glad that Jesus was resurrected. If he had not been, then his death would have been worthless to us. 
But we are here today to celebrate the death of Jesus. Jesus told us to remember that on the first day of the week. So if you bow with me, we'll offer thanks for the bread. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this bread, which represents Christ's body that was broken on the cross. We pray, Father, that as we partake of it, we might do so in a manner that would be acceptable in your sight. To these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I forgot to ask if anyone here doesn't have emblems. If you raise your hand, we can still get them to you. Sorry about that. All right, if you'll bow with me again, we'll offer thanks for the fruit of the vine. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this, the fruit of the vine which represents the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary's cross for the remission of our sins. We're so thankful for the sacrifice that he was willing to make, and we pray, Father, that our minds might be directed back to that cross, that we may partake of this in a manner that's acceptable in your sight. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. First Corinthians, the 16th chapter, tells us as Christians that we're to give on the first day of the week. We're to give as we've, prof as we've profited, as profited as we've purposed in our heart, and we're to do so cheerfully. That opportunity is ours now. Let's uh, thank God for all the blessings he gives us. Our Heavenly Father, we're so very thankful that we live in a country where we're blessed beyond measure. We're, we're thankful for all the things that you give us every day that we live. We're especially thankful for the jobs that we have, for the health that we enjoy that allows us to make a living, to uh, make money. And we pray, Father, that we would always use our resources to further the gospel. Help us to give in a way that would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. We've got 340 at worship this morning, and I want to welcome everyone, and there's so many young parents and children here. I want to let you know that you are exactly where the good Lord wants you to be today. Uh, and if you will give us an opportunity, you will find friends here that have common interests, and this will be a place where you can flourish because... Uh, you'll find out today if you hang around for the egg hunt and meal, uh, you're going to see a lot of people that love the Lord and work hard at doing his will. Uh, do have a few announcements. Uh, you're invited to join the Snowdown Church of Christ for a special day, Sunday, May 1st. The speaker will be David Sargent from the Creekwood Church of Christ. The Golden Circle Luncheon will be this coming Tuesday at 11.30. We want to congratulate Coach Jody Long today. He recently won his 400th game as softball coach for Northeast Mississippi Community College. That is a tremendous accomplishment, and what makes it even more so is Coach Jody Long does it the right way, and we're proud to have him here. Uh, we will be hosting a... Living with the Lost Workshop on April 30th and May 1st. This will be a series of lessons present, presented by Brother Dean Miller about life, marriage, and loss. This workshop will be beneficial to widows and widowers, married couples, and those who want to minister to these groups. Advertisements are available on the table in the foyer. All of us can benefit tremendously from this event as well as others we know and love. Be sure and do all you can to get the word out. 
Uh, we want to congratulate Jim and Janita Estes. They have a new great-granddaughter, Carson Lennox Ginn, born Friday, April 8th, 6 pounds, 7 ounces, 19 and 3 quarter inches long. The parents are Ashley and Aaron Ginn. Grandparents are Tim and Tammy Estes. Uh, Tim and Tammy have had two grandbabies in just over two months. Uh, both parents and grandparents live in Americus, Georgia. Uh, Brother Larry Morgan asked me to pass along that the scholarship meal went great last week and wants to thank everyone who helped with that. The scholarship committee was able to raise quite a bit of money. And uh, this morning, we do have our annual egg hunt. Uh, I want to thank so many people that helped with the setup, the bringing the eggs, the hiding the eggs. I probably have 2,000 plus eggs scattered out out there. Some do have money in them. Uh, there are some prize eggs for you young people. I'm going to go ahead and give instructions on how we want to do this. Uh, parents, after I say the closing prayer, we want all children involved in the egg hunt to come up here for our picture that we take each year. And during that time, our SALT team members, if you will go down to the annex and begin uh, setting up for the meal that's going to follow, getting drinks out and things like that, that, that would be a big help. But uh, we want all egg hunters, after I say the dismissal prayer, please come up here, Miss Jimmy and Dee, they'll, they'll take over from there. Right, Miss Jimmy? All right. If y'all will bow with me, we'll close with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you love us and you give us days like this that we, we come here to worship you. We love you. We love each other, and God, we, we pray that everything we do when we're here is pleasing unto you. And more importantly than that, God, we pray that everything we do when we leave here is pleasing to you so that the world can see your son Jesus through the lives that we live. Please forgive us where we failed you. Help keep us on the path that you want us to walk. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.